You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 23. If you have your Bibles, definitely encourage you to turn to Psalm 23, page 458. If you're using the church's Bible, Psalm 23 is arguably along with John 3.16, probably the best known passage of Scripture. It's something that as we get into this, you're going to go, I have heard that one before. So I encourage you to follow along as I read this, this wonderful Psalm. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. Lord, we come eager to hear your word, come eager to hear you speak to us through that word. And we ask now that you focus our hearts and our minds Solely on you. Give us understanding this morning, we pray, O Lord. Amen. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that uh, that wasn't the first time you have heard Psalm 23. Um, It's been recited in movies. It's been recited in novels. It's been set to music by Bach, by Schubert, and Williams. And it can be found in virtually every funeral parlor in the United States, usually with a pastel background and the shepherd on the wall or it's on the back of the bulletin. I mean, this is a very, very familiar psalm. And I think there's probably a few reasons why we have this fondness for Psalm 23, why it's so familiar to us. And first and foremost, it's familiar, even if only in a superficial sense. Because if someone were to approach you and ask you to recite lines from a psalm, chances are your mind is going to go to Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's just something we're familiar with. That familiarity does tend to provide some sort of fondness to it. But I think this familiarity actually also can pose a challenge. So as we're reading that, it's easy to kind of shut the mind off because you've heard it 10 million times in your life before. Because when we're familiar with something, what can often happen? We might take that thing for granted because it is so familiar to us. So as we, as we come to Psalm 23 and we read these familiar words, it can be easy for our minds to wonder and lose interest because, well, they're familiar and we've heard them 10 million times before. So that's certainly a challenge for us to overcome this morning. But I do think that familiarity is one reason why we do hold it with some fondness. But more importantly than that, much more importantly than that, 
And especially to those who are believers in Christ, not just to people who are culturally familiar with the pastel painting on the funeral parlor wall, I think the reason we have a fondness for Psalm 23 is that Psalm 23 provides us with a simple but a very honest expression of confidence in God. I say simple because the psalm is written in a pretty straightforward way that's frankly pretty easy to understand. When you're reading the psalm, I get it. You know, I get what the psalm is saying. But this psalm is also incredibly sincere in expressing confidence in God, both as our provider and as our protector amidst life's uncertainties. And it does this in a very personal way. And if you're someone who's lived life at all, you don't have to live very long to realize that life is full of uncertainties. Is it not? And if we're honest, it's these uncertainties that often cause us to fear and be anxious, which is exactly why we need a psalm like Psalm 23. So my hope this morning is that as we open up Psalm 23, that we, that is both you and I, will not only find comfort, but that we'll actually find hope in these cherished and familiar words. Let me introduce this psalm with uh, a quote by Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, in talking about Psalm 23, says this. He says, quote, It has been said that what the nightingale is among birds, that is this divine ode among the psalms. For it has sung sweetly in the ear of many a mourner in his night of weeping, and has bidden him hope for a morning of joy. He's pretty good. And so with that, I invite you to turn back to Psalm 23. And right away you're going to notice, just before verse 1, David is identified as the author of this psalm. And I think that makes perfect sense, given the theme of shepherd used throughout the psalm. I mean, we know, of course, that David himself was a shepherd, and he would well understand the relationship of a shepherd to his sheep. So that makes sense. You're also going to notice the psalm is relatively short. It only has six verses, and it's been broken into three short stanzas. The first stanza, which includes verses 1 through 3, introduces the main theme of God as shepherd. And you see this right away in verse 1. What do we read? The Lord is my shepherd. And do you see how the word Lord is spelled there in the first verse? It's spelled with all capitals, right? And do you guys recall why that's important? You may remember whenever we see this writing of the word Lord, it's a reference to Yahweh, the divine covenant name for God. Now, this is one of those areas where our familiarity with this passage may cause us to miss something important. We've heard this so many times, we may not catch this. In using this divine name, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, David is reminding himself... And all the readers of this psalm, which would include us today, of God's covenant promise to provide for and protect His people. As Rick would say, Pastor Rick, he would say, this is covenant language we're reading. Now, this should be familiar to us considering our current study of Genesis where we've seen God prove His faithfulness time and time again to Abraham and then to Isaac, and soon we're going to see this continue to Jacob, so on and so forth. 
So here at the beginning, by calling on the Lord, Yahweh, he's recalling all that history that we've been studying in Genesis. Who delivered the Hebrews out of Egypt? Who led them through the wilderness? Who provided the manna to eat and led them to the water to drink? Who protected them and then brought them into the promised land? Yahweh. It's as if David is saying, Yahweh is my shepherd, and he has proven himself faithful time and time and time again. Therefore, I shall not want. He's going to keep his promise. How do I know that? Because he has. But notice David does not simply say the Lord is Israel's shepherd, which was a really common theme in Scripture. Just a quick aside here. You don't have to turn with me. But in Isaiah 40.11, we read that he will tend his flock, which would be the Jewish people, like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So that's certainly true. God is Israel's shepherd. But David's going to take it a step further, and he's going to make it personal. And he's going to say, the Lord is my shepherd. And this is David's way of expressing personal love for God. And he's recognizing that all of his earthly blessings were due to God's hand. And we're going to see this personal sentiment echoed throughout the rest of the psalm. Look at the way in which the personal pronouns are used. If you just look briefly at Psalm 23. So you have, He makes me. He lies, or leads me. He restores my. And that's just echoed and echoed and echoed throughout this psalm. Yes, Yahweh is the God of Israel, but He is also the God of each Israelite. More importantly, Yahweh is David's shepherd. Pastor Kim Riddlebarger explains why this is important. He says, quote, In light of this personal expression of Yahweh as his God, it is important to consider the fact that throughout the Psalms, God is most often spoken of as a king or as a deliverer or as that impersonal shield or rock. Well, in contrast, the metaphor of God as shepherd is very, very personal. The shepherd lives with his flock 24-7. The shepherd leads the flock to food and water. He protects the defenseless sheep from predators like wolves and lions. And he attends to the sheep's wounds and injuries. The sheep completely and totally depend upon their shepherd. You can see why that's significant. David is also perhaps recalling his forefather Jacob's blessing to Joseph in Genesis 48 when he says, he says in Genesis 48, 15, this is Jacob speaking. He says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. You have to wonder if David wasn't considering some of that language as he wrote Psalm 23. And I think there's an application for us here to consider, and it's this. So if, if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, trusting fully on Him for your salvation, then you can take comfort in the fact that Yahweh is your shepherd. And guess what? He can be trusted to lead us through life's uncertainties, just as David could trust Yahweh we can trust Yahweh. 
And just take a moment to consider the gravity of that statement. The Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh, the great I am that I am. The maker of worlds and galaxies. The one who spoke all things into existence from nothing. He's my shepherd. He is personally guiding and directing my life. Surely he knows what I need, right? He's God. He knows everything. But here's the question I think we have to answer this morning and throughout life. Can he be trusted? Can he be trusted with my fears, with my doubts, with my sorrow? Can he be trusted with my hope? Hope can be a fragile thing. David's going to answer these questions, and he's going to do so with a resounding yes. Look at the following verses. Verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Now, in David's time, shepherds had to lead their sheep to pastures that could sustain the flock with food and water. But this posed danger to the flock because during these times of travel, sheep, which weren't aren't the smartest creatures on, on God's green earth, you know, they might wander off, they could be injured, or they could be attacked by predators during the journal. Plus, to top it all off, there was no guarantee that an adequate pasture would even be found at the end of their journey. Got to remember, the Middle East at this time was not like the tri-state area. You know, food and water could be rather scarce. We've been seeing that in Genesis as we come to Abraham. There's a famine in the land. Isaac, there's a famine in the land. Now, keeping that image in mind, compare their experience in that time with Yahweh's pasture. He makes me lie down in green pastures. God's pasture is evergreen. So guess what? There's never a a need to leave and take on all those risks of going to the next pasture. Here the sheep are able to lie down and rest without worry or want. And then in verse 3, David goes on to say something really important. He says, he restores my soul. Have you ever felt as though your soul needed to be restored? Has your soul ever taken a beating? If you haven't experienced this, I can assure you that at some point in life you will. (laughs) Because grief and guilt, and fear, and anxiety, you can name the condition, they are all part of the human experience because of sin. That's what life is like this side of Adam and Eve's fall. Now David certainly understood what it meant to have an injured soul. Just consider his condition after the prophet Nathan condemned him for his sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. Or his grief when his son Absalom died. David was well acquainted with heartache. But here in verse 3, he actually announces to us the remedy. So you have heartache. So you have anxiety. What's the remedy? Well, God is the remedy. He restores my soul. The Lord restores my soul. Just as the sheep in Yahweh's green pasture find rest and provision, so does David in his covenant Lord. You see, when David considers the goodness of God and he remembers his faithfulness, 
his faith in God's promises and his confidence in God's ability to meet David's needs is renewed and it's strengthened so that now he can say something really profound in verse 4. Now he can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So here in verse 4, David kind of shifts. He shifts from that comforting image of the Lord's green pasture to one that's actually scary. It's ominous. It's full of dread. And as a child, I used to imagine David reciting this verse in the context of like fighting Goliath. You know, because when you're a kid, that has to be the scariest thing you would ever do if you're David. So in my young mind, I could think of nothing more terrifying than battling a giant on your own with an audience and incredibly high stakes. You know, that'd be terrible. I guess it still would be terrible as an adult. But now, as an adult, as I consider David's words here, you know, I associate this image with David losing his son Absalom to death. So you may recall that his son Absalom, he rebelled against David and sought his throne. Well, the only way he gets to David's throne is what? David's got to go. He's got to die. This ultimately led to a conflict that resulted in Absalom's death. So not only did David experience the grief of losing his son's love, he lost all hope of reconciling with his son when his son died. And as a father... I mean, I can think of a few things worse than this, you know? I mean, that would be so difficult to deal with. David was a man who was well acquainted with pain and grief. Now, we don't know in history exactly when David wrote this psalm. So everything I just said, I want you to bear in mind, it's conjecture on my part. So it, he might not necessarily be writing it with that context in mind. But I think we can understand the point that he's trying to make. He's saying, look... Life is a mixed bag of joy and of sorrow. But here's the point. Just as a shepherd would sometimes lead his flock through the deep ravines, which were full of shadows and they were full of threats, the Lord, too, may lead us, his sheep, to the place we dread most in life. A place that maybe we each define a little differently, but it's one that nonetheless exists in our hearts. And it could very well be that we'll find ourselves in that valley. There's no promise that our lives are going to be free of sorrow and pain. In fact, the Apostle James seems to indicate the exact opposite in the first chapter of his book. He says we're going to what? Face trials of many kinds. But David is reminding us that in spite of these trials, the shepherd is leading the way and he will bring us through to the other side. Why? How do we know this? Because he's faithful. He's proven himself faithful. So when the trials of life come, we need to remember we're not alone. The shepherd is with us. And so we're not to fear the evil we encounter along the way. Now that suggests something, doesn't it? It suggests that we're going to encounter evil along the way. So guess what? We shouldn't be surprised when we do. But we can take heart that when God takes us into the valley of the shadow of death, He doesn't abandon us and say, Hey, I'll see you on the other side. Go get him, Tiger. Hope you make it. You know, He doesn't give us a pat on the back. Good luck. No, God is 
leading and protecting us throughout the journey. Not only does he have a rod, which is used to fight the predators, to fight the thieves who would come to cause us harm, he also carries a staff to make sure we don't wander, to pull us back to himself. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But he's with us. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So in the third stanza of the psalm, David provides yet another vivid picture of God's love. So during the time of David, during these ancient times, eating a meal with somebody carried a lot more weight than it does today. For instance, in ancient times, if two parties were going to make a covenant together, if they were going to make this legally binding agreement to one another, they would often ratify or make that that covenant legal with a meal. So notice something about this table, though. This table has actually been prepared by Yahweh himself. And look who's the invited guest. It's as if David has come out of this valley, probably weighted shoulders, terrible burdens, head low, and he's emerged to find this beautiful table and a meal with his Lord. Not only is Yahweh our host, we are the guest of honor at his table where nothing is lacking. No expense has been, has been spared at Yahweh's table. And this reference to the cup which overflows is a picture of Yahweh providing us with the best of all things. And if that's not enough, while we dine at Yahweh's table, who's watching? Our enemies. They're witnesses, but they're not at the table. It's a picture of God's power. It's a picture of God's rule over His and our enemies and their ability to do harm to us. And then David's going to conclude this psalm by saying in verse 6, Given all I've said, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So David concludes the psalm on this soaring note. It's as if he's reclined after the meal, and he's thinking to himself, after everything I have been through, the good, the bad, and we've discussed he's had both. God has been faithful, and it's been worth it. Then the only conclusion is to say, surely this goodness and this mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And it reminds me of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 1, where he says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, it would be a mistake to look at David's words here and only associate this goodness of God with the physical blessings of provision in life. That would be a mistake. That's certainly part of God's goodness and mercy. However, that's just the tip of the iceberg. The apex of God's goodness and mercy is found in His covenant to redeemed, ruined sinners. What makes the table in the presence of the Lord such a wonderful, comforting, and profound scene is not the abundance of the food and the wealth. It's the fact that we get to experience it at all. That's one of those points of familiarity we have to break through. 
the fact that we're at the table is huge. God's enemies are on the outside looking in. We would do well to remember that we too were the enemies of God and would still be apart from Him intervening in our lives. But that's the good news, isn't it? Yahweh has made a covenant to redeem a people for Himself. We've seen this all the way back to Abraham, all the way back in the garden in Genesis 3.15. And He's ratified this covenant with this meal at His table so we can rest assured of God's everlasting favor. It's really a beautiful picture when we stop to consider it. To say it another way, the promise that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever is the Old Testament equivalent to Paul's assertion in Romans 8, where he says, No, in all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So I know I've already said this, but I'll say it again. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning and trusting fully on Him for your salvation, take comfort in the fact that the Lord is your shepherd and He can be trusted to lead us through life's uncertainties. Now, that's an easy thing to say. But how do we transition this truth from knowing it in our head to believing it in our hearts? And sometimes it's a week-by-week process. Sometimes it's a day-by-day process. Sometimes it's a moment-by-moment process where we have to do this in our own hearts and minds. But turn with me to John chapter 10. Go forward to the New Testament. John chapter 10, page 896 in the church's Bible. So John chapter 10, we're going to begin in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought all out his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now look down to verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now bump down to verse 14. Again, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Do you see the connection to verse 23, or Psalm 23? Jesus just applied it to himself. We don't have to wonder who the shepherd is. He says, I am the shepherd Jesus, or David was speaking about. Jesus is the one who leads us to greener pastures. He's the one who will overflow our cup 
with abundant life. Everything Psalm 23 says about of the shepherd is fulfilled by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And this shepherd theme, this big idea of the shepherd is going to be taken up again by the Apostle John, the same John who's written this gospel in the book of Revelation. Go forward to Revelation 7. So Revelation 7, near the back of the Bible. We're going to begin in verse 9. So that'd be page 1032. This is where our scripture memory verse came from. So in these verses, this is John being given the heavenly vision of the throne of God. And he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So in this vision, John's seeing the people who dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And guess what? Goodness and mercy have followed them. And their enemies are nowhere to be seen. Continue in verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So here, John, he's seeing those who've passed through the valley of the shadow of death, but they weren't abandoned. Their shepherd was with them every step of the way, and he's brought them through that dreadful valley. Now they're clothed in white robes, washed clean of all sin, clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. And he concludes in verse 15, he says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Look, I'll be the first to admit that life can be really difficult. Life can really be tough, if we're honest. And because of sin, we live in a broken and a messed up world that sometimes results in tremendous pain. But Psalm 23 reminds us that we're not left to wander these paths alone, are we? No, we have a shepherd who knows us, and he calls us by name. He's also a shepherd who can sympathize with our weakness because he took on flesh and walked this earth as one of us, didn't he? He knows exactly what it means to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He knows about its pain. He knows about its sorrow. And now he offers to lead us as well. 
We couldn't have a better guide. He's been to the depths and he's come out. Too often, I think we convince ourselves that peace in life is going to be the result of good circumstances. You know, if I just had this, life would be easier. If I could just, you know, that, I'd have a little more peace. But then when things don't go our way, we get confused when our hearts get sorrowful. Or maybe we do get that thing we've been longing for, and we realize after a little while that doesn't fulfill. The truth we find not only in Psalm 23, but throughout Scripture, is that peace can only be found in God alone. Only He can calm the tempest of our fearful hearts. Church Father Augustine famously said, he said, quote, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it rests in You. So in conclusion, I want to leave you with the words of Dr. Sinclair Ferguson regarding Psalm 23. I figure if you can't do better, just use what they've already done. And he does a pretty good job. So Sinclair Ferguson writes, quote, Jesus saw the depths of meaning in the words of Psalm 23. He must have sung these words with joy. He looked back to his father Jacob and to David, and like them, he trusted his father to provide all of his needs. Indeed, as he explained to his puzzled disciples, his father provided his nourishment. I have food to eat that you don't know about. My food's to do the will of him who sent me. But Jesus also must have read Psalm 23 with a deep sense of burden. For he knew that ultimately, he himself was the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. What Jacob and David saw only dimly, Jesus saw clearly. The shepherd shepherd must suffer for his sheep. As the good shepherd... Jesus would take the place of his sheep, and he would be the lamb that was led to slaughter. For them, he would be smitten. He would give everything of himself to provide everything for us. The implication? Since he was not spared, but delivered up for us all, we can be sure he will give us everything we need. This is what a Christian means by saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's both the lamb that was slain and the good shepherd. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for these comforting and familiar words of Psalm 23. And now, Father, we ask that you would impress them upon our hearts. May they serve to comfort us and increase our faith in you, because you're the only one who can provide the rest our weary souls so often require. So, Lord, we ask these things in the name of our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Amen.